0: it seems very clear that when we look at the nature of our lives, what we see actually is constant change and this intricate array of conditions that are often outside of our personal control. Once I was hiking with some friends in uh, this state forest in California and we had decided that we were going to hike for three days and then on the fourth day turn around and retrace our steps back out of the forest to the same path so the third day i was walking with this one particular friend and it turned out to be a day of nearly constant unremitting downhill walking at one point it was almost as though we were struck by this simultaneous realization And we both just stopped in our tracks, and we turned to one another, and my friend said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can mean only one thing. (laughs) And sure enough, he was right, because the next day, when we turned around and began to retrace our steps, it was a day of hour after hour after hour of uphill walking, In some way, we live in a dualistic universe. So you might say, on one level, we live in a dualistic universe, in that our world is a constant presentation of, as the Buddha said, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. That these eight vicissitudes, as he termed it, make up our lives, So it's not even that we can say so accurately that life is changing, but we would say perhaps more accurately that life is change. It's this constant succession of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's the nature of a human life. There's no one on this earth who has only downhill and no uphill, only pleasure and no pain, only praise and no blame. I have a a friend who once had to tell her uh, very young child, actually it was the same child who ran screaming through the house (laughs) in last night's talk, (laughs) whenever he didn't get what he wanted. Um, She had to tell her child that the person who had been uh, helping take care of him from the time that he was born, or really just after he was born, until he was four years old, was going to be leaving. Um, She was going to be moving to another state and uh, living with her sister. So she sat down with her child, who was just a little over four years old, and she very slowly explained the whole thing, that the, the caretaker really loved him and cared for him, but something had happened with her sister and so she needed to leave and go live with her sister but they would still speak to one another on the telephone and they could write to each other and they could maintain a close connection and at the end of all of that the little boy looked up at his mother and said mommy could you tell me that story again but with a different ending this time (laughs) and I thought oh yeah Obviously, I'm very in sympathy with this child, whether he's screaming or what. But I thought, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. You know, like, couldn't we just, like, turn the time machine back, please? (laughs) And make that not have happened so that that wouldn't have happened? Or couldn't you tell me that story again, but with a different ending? (laughs) But sometimes, you know, we have to face the fact that we can't change the end of the story. It may not be the absolute final end but it's sort of the present moment's revelation. And sometimes we can't change it. And so then the question is, how do we live a life that is constant change, that has all of these vicissitudes arising outside of our control, where we can't necessarily change the end of the story and still be free? Not just abiding and enduring, like barely getting through, but actually be free. Have that sense of inner abundance so that we can give, we can be happy, we can share happiness or loving-kindness energetically. That really is our challenge. The quality that, more than anything, is, is the quality of strength that allows us to go through all of these changes and if not remain full-hearted, certainly renew a state of being full-hearted is the quality of equanimity. Now, equanimity is the fourth Brahma-Vihara. It's the fourth of these practices that are supportive of one another and are usually taught together. And it's another word that is quite Difficult to understand. It's a very complex idea that we may easily misinterpret. In the teachings, um, I think I mentioned this slightly before, uh, these four qualities, the 4 brahmaviharas, Brahma-viharas, have what are known as the far enemies. Those are the states that are the complete opposite, that anyone would really quite readily recognize as being other than the state of loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. But they also have qualities that are known as the near-enemies, those factors of mind or those ways of being that are close enough to be confusing but are really not the same. And the near-enemy of equanimity is indifferent. It's not the same, but it can appear the same. And so one has to have a very deep sense of one's own truth, one's own state, in order to know the difference. Equanimity doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean withholding or withdrawing. Many of these states are actually considered to be very subtle forms of ill will or aversion or striking out against what's happening. Whereas equanimity is, instead, it's a full meeting of what's happening with clarity, with cognizance and yet with balance of mind. It's really meeting everything with perspective, with wisdom, knowing that on one level, at any rate, we do live in a dualistic universe with ups and downs and changes and things happening that we want and things happening that we don't want. And how to hold all of that with the perspective of wisdom is actually the role of equanimity. Someone once told me a story about um, this late Tibetan Lama, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was living in the States, um, who did this exercise with with a class one day. He took a very large, white piece of paper, and just in the center of it, he drew a kind of loose, floppy, V-shaped character. Then he held it up in front of the class and he said, What is this a picture of? Apparently, everyone in the class responded by saying, It's a picture of a bird. And then Trungpa Rinpoche said, No, it's not. It's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. That movement of fixation, just seeing the bird, is the source of so much of our suffering when we step back and open up, broaden our perspective to take in the bigger picture, that is the nature of equanimity. It's not disconnected, it's very connected, but it's very broad, it's very open. It reminded me um, somewhat of this time when, just a few years ago, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and some friends of mine were with me and heard that I had never been to the opera. So they decided they would take me to the opera house in Santa Fe, um, which is quite famous and is and will be until next year, an open-air opera theater. I was just there, I think, like a week ago. Um, uh, And um, the time years ago when they first brought me to the opera, our seats were in such a place so that I could see the stage, but behind the stage, I could see this vast, expanse of sky, and New Mexico is quite famous for these very large vistas where you just seem to see an infinity of of sky and space. So there I was sitting in my seat, and I would be watching these people behaving kind of operatically, if not hysterically, on the stage, doing this opera, and behind them I would just see this clear space, this open, unimpeded space. And that's what I thought of when I heard this example of Trungpa Rinpoche's. It's like we can see the entire performance and know just what's happening, but sometimes we can also see the sky. And that's a very different perspective. That is the perspective of wisdom. It's not just for consolation. It's not just a way of finding comfort it's actually finding comfort in the truth of things, being more in harmony with the truth of things. And so equanimity is that continual reminder of the truth of things. This is how things are. In its particular role as a Brahma-vihara, it supports and extends the power and the, the magnitude of the other qualities like loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy. Because without equanimity, they do become quite limited. We would offer love only when it was returned or somebody really stopped suffering, just like we wanted them to. We would only offer compassion when the sight of the suffering would not break our hearts, or we would not feel that we had to do what, in fact, we could never do, which is make someone's suffering go away. And we would only offer sympathetic joy in the rarest of circumstances when we didn't feel threatened, when our own happiness didn't feel so limited. With the understanding of equanimity, we don't withhold and we don't withdraw. We do everything that we can do, but with wisdom, with understanding. The example is always given in contemporary times of, what if you had a friend who you really cared about, and yet this friend was engaged in some very self-destructive behavior, which was, in fact, the source of much of their ongoing suffering. You might care about them, love them, try to help them, do what you could, but in the end, you cannot make somebody be happy. Because so many of their choices and their decisions and their own styles of life will determine the course of their happiness, their unhappiness. That recognition doesn't make us stop giving metta. It actually allows us to keep giving metta. It's just we see things as they are. The example that's always given in the text is that of a parent whose child has now grown up and become an adult the parent doesn't say to the child, well, you know, it's been fun, but it's over now, I'm sorry, you've got to go. There's still tremendous love and connection and sympathetic joy and compassion. But there's some ability to let go. There's some recognition that this child is now an adult. They're making their own life choices. They may be making choices of suffering, some choices of joy, But that is not something that we can determine, we can control. So equanimity is a maintaining of connection and a letting go of control, because it's that effort to control that defies the truth of how things actually are. Sometimes I read, I mention this to a group, I read these examples in the text, and I think, well, they had pretty good families in those days, I guess, you know? All those parents let go, and, (laughs) you know, it was quite wonderful but you can kind of feel your way into it, even if your own family was not precisely like that. In fact, I have a a beautiful set of photos on my um, mantle at home of my Tibetan teacher, Kempo, that happy one, and uh, they were taken in um, somebody's house that we'd gone to visit in the States where um, there were a tremendous number of animals in the house. And The the first picture is a set of two Um, was taken when this dove came over, flew over and landed on Kempo's hand. And he's just sitting there holding the dove and cherishing it. And there's such a a huge amount of metta for this dove as he's holding it. And then in the next picture, the dove is flying away. And Kempo is just raising his hands in joy as he's letting it go, as it's flying away. I look at that picture a lot as I think of the quality of equanimity. To have the patience and the trust to hold that dove, to have the patience and the trust of the dove to land on this person's hand, to have that connection, that communion. And then for him to be able to take delight as it flies away, and for it to have the courage to fly away. They're all different aspects of this quality of equanimity, which is not cold, and is not indifferent. It's really, it's very full and very rich. It's got an immensity that is based on its openness, on its inclusivity. It's a spacious stillness of mind that can take in everything. Equanimity is also not delusion. It's not a state that is confused about what's happening. Or cut off from what's happening. Delusion is, um, the word in Pali for delusion is moha, which means to be stupefied. And it's a state we all fall into sometimes where it's like the clouds just descend. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, if you're, you could easily have it here (laughs) actually in this country if you're driving down a road and suddenly you don't know where you are and you think where am I and just the other night you know before the retreat started when I was in a car uh, I just started laughing and the person driving said why are you laughing and I said because all these roads look alike you know it's just like there's a hedge on one side and there's a hedge on the other side and it's like no idea where you are but it's that confusion like where am I that's the state of delusion it's very different from equanimity which is so in touch with what's going on. And just for fun, I promised someone that I would talk a little bit about the personality types in, in the Buddhist psychological system, and because delusion figures quite strongly in that psychology. <laughs> some people. <laughs> um, uh, as, the, as the system describes it, it describes people according to their predominant Um, defilement, you might say, all of which is mutable and changeable, and all of which can be transformed into something else. All of these qualities have, you might say, uh, a negative side and a positive side to them. And in the course of paying more careful attention and being more aware and being kinder, then the positive aspects of these start strengthening. It's like alchemy. You know, they just They emerge, whereas the painful and limiting qualities of these start to subside. And it's really translated into three main types. That is the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. A greedy type of person um, is the kind of person who would tend to walk into a room and see what they like, or see what they want. Like, well, I wish I had that, or I like what they're wearing. And they're also the type of person who only wants to see the bright side of things and the good side of people, like only the good side of people, because it's too messy to see the rest. It's too disagreeable. And so um, they're the kind of person who would sit in a meeting and say, it'll all work out. And everyone else might be saying, well, how? You know, don't worry, it'll all work out. Whereas the angry type of person um, is the kind of person who would tend to walk into a room and see everything that's wrong. Um, I don't like this and I don't like that and I could have done this better and, you know, why is there that little hole there? Somebody say it has gone. around. <laughs> and uh, would more readily say, it won't work out. can't work. And in a way, um, the greedy type of person is said to transmute into a person of great trust because there's that same ability to draw near to life, to live life fully, to want to be engaged, in both of those characteristics of mind, but the greedy type has that edge of greed, of sticking, of wanting to control. And when that starts to fall away, then what's left is that open-yielding nature. An angry type of person is is often very intelligent, and that transmutes to wisdom, because there's a certain cutting-through quality with anger of, like, not staying on the surface of things, and not taking things for granted, and not being gullible, and really being willing to look at suffering and name it in a way that many people are not, but maybe not always with a sense of hope that something can be done about it. And so what happens is that that cutting through quality, which can be brilliant, can be retained without the isolating and the burning and the um, kind of out of control, the diluted nature of anger. And so that's how that transmutes. And delusion itself is that quality of being confused, kind of spaced out and not really connected, not really knowing what's going on. And so that in itself can get can get uh, transmuted into equanimity when it's connected rather than withdrawn. To be a deluded type, which I am very <laughs> strongly, um, means that... I wouldn't necessarily walk into a room and notice what I liked or didn't like. I would just kind of be okay. It's like when I am told diluted types are very wonderful to travel with. Like when I was traveling with this one friend through China and Tibet, she's a, a self proclaimed greedy type. And we would we would walk into a room, a hotel room, that we were gonna share and she would say, Do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, No, that's fine. <laughs> And then, like, maybe 15 minutes later or 20 minutes later, I'd say, why'd you want that bed? And she'd say, oh, because the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it, and it's near the light, so I can tell the light, and it's near the window, so I can tell the window, and the mattress isn't sagging. And then, you know, and she'd just notice everything that, w- that was desirable about that particular bed, and I hadn't noticed a single thing. Um, that's the way it can go. I have no sense of direction whatsoever. I get lost wherever I go. And, in fact, I'm flying... Uh, to Switzerland the day after this course ends to teach another course and the person who's going to pick me up, who's a very old friend of mine and knows me really well, just called the other day and he said, don't go anywhere. He said, he said go into the terminal and don't move. He said, he said if I'm not there, it's just because I got stuck in a traffic jam. He said, don't look for a train, don't go anywhere. He said, don't take any initiative. This is my favorite line. He said, just stay there. And then he he kind of caught himself and he said, well, you can sit down. (laughs) He said, find a seat, but don't go anywhere, okay? And I said, fine, (laughs) you know, no problem. So, delusion, whether one is predominantly a deluded type, and certainly we're all a mixture of all three to some extent or not, um, (laughs) can transform into equanimity, but it is not in and of itself the state of equanimity. And the difference is the matter of noticing, of being aware, of being connected, and actually being awake. Our lives, really, for all of us, seem to be this constant succession of these eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And who amongst us can control that or have that cease or go only to our liking? We just can't do that. My favorite of the vicissitudes actually to talk about is praise and blame, because um in so many ways it it shows how much out of control we are. You know, when the Buddha talked about action, uh he talked about three elements to any action. He talked about the intention or the motivation behind the action, and he talked about the skillfulness or the relative skillfulness with which the action is performed. And then he talked about the praise or the blame that follows upon that. Now, the intention is, is a fascinating world which, interestingly enough, only we can know, really, our own intention. You know, it's like if I reached down and picked up this book and handed it to one of you, All anybody would see is my hand going down and lifting the book and reaching out. But I could be doing that from a whole different range of intentions. I could be giving you the book, or offering you the book, because you have a book that I want, and I'm hoping if I give you this one you'll give me that one, or because we're in this room full of people and I want everyone to think of me as a very generous person, or because I really like you and I want you to have the book. There could be so many different motivations underlying this action. And while we might take a guess, or have an intuition, about someone else's motivation, really only we can know for ourselves. And so that is a a training ground of tremendous honesty and self-awareness, is to know our motivation. Because the motivation is said to be, it's said to contain the potency of the action. That's where the energy is, is in the motivation. That's really the most important thing about the action. When the Buddha taught this, it was actually um, something of a social revolution. In the philosophical system of the Buddha's time, it was believed that uh, people had a kind of individual morality based upon their gender or their, their class or their caste at birth. So that an action like reading uh, Scripture and mediating with the forces of the Divine, which might be very noble and wonderful and appropriate for a Brahmin male, might be forbidden to a Brahmin female or forbidden to someone of another caste. Whereas um, going to war, being a warrior, might be appropriate a certain section of the population and not to others, and that what was moral for some was immoral for others, based upon birth. And the Buddha came along and said that birth and gender and social status and caste were completely irrelevant considerations in questions of morality. That morality is based upon intention. All things rest on the tip of motivation. And that no matter who you are, an action that is born out of greed or anger or delusion has a certain kind of result. And an action born out of love, out of compassion, out of generosity, out of care, out of wisdom, has a certain kind of result. So with that one teaching, he shook up a lot, you know, because it was a complete denial of the spiritual significance of social status. He said, it's totally irrelevant. What matters is what happens in your own mind, in your own heart, in the realm of motivation. And so that's a place we really look to understand our own integrity, the source of our action, the energy, uh, the seed, the karmic seed that we have just planted, is coming from the motivation. And then there's the level of skillfulness, which involves a kind of wisdom which is known as clear comprehension. That means we really try to see the bigger picture. We see the biggest picture that we can. We try to see the context of what's going on. So that if, for example, you have something to say to somebody and you feel well, I'm not sure how they're going to take it. It's a little bit of a sensitive issue. You might look around, you know, you might not shout it out to them across a crowded room. You might wait, you know, you might take them aside, say it as gently as you can. You look into the context, you know, if somebody walks into the room and says, I haven't slept all night and I had, you know, the most horrid, you know, phone call I've ever imagined and this and that, you might think, not today. <laughs> you know, it takes a real sensitivity and awareness, not you know, the awareness of our motivation, but in addition, an awareness to context, to looking around, to seeing how things are in as broad and direct, unbiased way as possible, and to be able to listen truly and deeply to people as they speak about the level of our skillfulness or unskillfulness, as they reflect it back to us. But that is different than just the sheer... Um, kind of cascade of praise and blame. Because no matter what we do, if we say things from the most beautiful motivation in the world, and we say it with the utmost skill we can possibly muster in that particular situation, still there will be praise and blame. Because that is just the nature of life. It's one of, actually, my favorite stories of the Buddha's time, because I think it portrays what a uh, kind of genuine human being, and very down-to-earth the Buddha seems to have been, uh, when um, he said, there's always blame in this world. And the story behind it is that once this man came to the monastery and uh, wanted to know something of what the Buddha taught, so he came one day, And he came upon this monk who had taken a vow of silence for that period of time. So when this man asked him, Will you please tell me something of the Buddha's teaching? The monk didn't say anything, and the man became furious, and he stomped away. And the same man came back the second day and came upon a different disciple of the Buddha's, who happened to have been a monk very learned in theory, as well as very grounded in practice. And when this man said to him, Will you tell me something of the Buddha's teaching? He apparently went into a very long, elaborate, theoretical discussion of the Buddha's teaching. And once again the man became furious and he stomped away. The man came back a third day and he came upon a third disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda. Now Ananda had heard what had happened on the first day and had heard what had happened on the second day. So when this man asked him, will you tell me something of the Buddha's teaching? It said that Ananda was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man said something to him like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went to the Buddha, and they said, oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you think? And the Buddha responded by saying, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. Which doesn't mean we don't listen and we don't pay attention, especially to feedback, because that gives us a clue about the level of our skillfulness. But ultimately, there is just praise and blame, just like there's pleasure and pain in this world. And what's so amazing, you know, is to do the very same thing, same motivation, same skillfulness, or relative lack of skillfulness, and to get so much praise and so much blame for the very same thing. It just shows how our deepest sense of integrity and how we've done and who we are cannot be dependent on these changing winds, because they change constantly outside of our control. I was just telling this group this morning, it was very funny when, um, I was just recently in California, and um, I had lunch with somebody uh, who's a writer, and she said to me, Oh, you wrote loving kindness in in such a way that it's really just like being with you. It's like sitting down and have a, having a conversation with you. It's really you." And that was so touching to me, because this person uh, is quite a good writer, that when I was having dinner that night with a whole other group of people, I mentioned it. You know, and I said, oh, you know, somebody said this really lovely thing to me today at lunch that, you know, the book is really just like me. And somebody at the dinner table said, on reading your book, it's nothing like you.
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, okay. <laughs> maybe it's not maybe it is you know it's like and then where is our heart you know are we exhilarated at lunch and devastated at dinner or do we kind of understand that these are the changing winds of praise and blame I mean of course we like praise and we don't like blame it's not that one loses all sensibility you know or becomes this inert mass of no feeling Of course we like one and we prefer one, but do we rest our hearts upon it? Do we really place our trust in that for our sense of who we are? Do we look for our deepest happiness in that? Because if we do, we are in big trouble. Sometimes I tell the story about when I first sent out the manuscript of Loving Kindness to these different publishing houses, and the first letter I got back was from Shambhala, which ultimately published the book, and they said, oh, we really liked your manuscript, and um, your style is so personal, and, you know, we'd really like to publish the book, and, of course, I was very happy, and then about two days later, I got a letter from another publisher that I had sent um, the manuscript to, and their letter said, your style lacks personal distinction. <laughs> And they went on and on about everything that was wrong with the book and they actually counted almost point by point everything that the people from Shambhala had said was right with the book. And of course I didn't like that letter very much at all and I went in to see Joseph um, with that letter and he read it and he looked at me and he said, oh, it's a good thing that other letter came first, isn't it? (laughs) I said, yeah, it's a good thing. I really enjoyed getting that one, you know. But what can you do? I mean, there is always blame in this world. And it's the same book. I mean, it's the same manuscript. And now it's the same book, which is either like me or not like me, which is either personally distinctive or not, you know, depending on what. I don't know. And so you just look at how it kind of goes around. It's, it's the very arising of this universe of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's always like that. And our refuge, really, apart from developing greater awareness to context and that sensitivity, is a tremendous understanding of our own intention, is to really be able to come back and see what our intention is, what's our motivation, because that is the energy that we are giving rise to in that moment, that we are planting, that we are nurturing. That's what we're committing ourselves to. That's the expression of our heart's deepest value in that moment, is our motivation. That's what we keep coming back to understand. To know that that is very powerful was revolutionary in the time of the Buddha, and it's very revolutionary now to disentangle the threads of our being exalted with praise and devastated with blame, and to have the steadiness of mind that knows that all things change. And what we need to work with and what we can count on is the nature of our own motivation. I was once considering writing a book called Basically Clueless, which wasn't my deluded book, which I also thought of writing. Um, But it was really an expression of what is probably the greatest thing I reflect on. It's my greatest personal teaching right now, which is a matter of trust. You know, I keep alluding to it in some ways, um, that idea of planting seeds and then letting them grow is really a question of trust. The thing that I came to in uh, doing loving-kindness practice where I saw that I was trying to do the practice and make it work and realized that I just had to do the practice and let it work. It works or it doesn't work, but it doesn't work because I make it work. It's inherently what happens. Many things come down to or back to our ability to trust trust our own motivation, to trust the opportunity that's in front of us, to trust the rightness of offering loving-kindness, even if it doesn't look like, and in fact doesn't, take away the suffering of a situation or a person, to trust the rightness of being compassionate, even when we can do that in terms of a heart space and there's nothing we can do and maybe even need to withdraw ourselves physically from a certain situation. To understand the difference between our motivation and our action is very freeing. It's very important. And that is one of the places where trust and equanimity come in. Because there are many times when we can't change the end of the story for ourselves or for somebody else. We can't make the suffering go away. And we may not even find it wise to be present in a certain situation. But within our hearts, we can be inclusive. We don't have to be cut off. Equanimity shows us that we can't do everything. The traditional phrases in equanimity practice are, all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. If you go back to that example of the friend with self-destructive behavior, not everybody feels attuned to this idea of karma or feels comfortable using those phrases, and so you don't need to use those phrases. But in that practice, it's something like things are the way that they are. And so, we have peace with that, and we have composure with that, which doesn't lead to complacency, it doesn't mean we don't care, and it doesn't mean we go into a state of delusion or indifference. It means that we have a kind of broadening or extension of our ability to be present, because we're not taking on this sort of impossible burden of changing everything. I used this example recently in the same course that I used the example of feeling like I was in control of the weather. And somebody asked me afterwards if I thought I had um, some kind of megalomania going on. But (laughs) I don't think it's that extreme. I think it's just an example uh, of how we all can be um, into this sort of feeling like we should be in control. And that was um, when I was in Barry uh, one autumn. And in the autumn there, uh, it's extremely beautiful. The leaves on the trees turn these glorious reds and yellows and orange, and it's just stunningly beautiful. And I had a friend that year from California who told me that she was going to visit, not only visit Barry for the first time in the autumn, but visit the East Coast of the United States for the first time in the autumn, which means she had never seen that kind of thing, you know, with the trees like that. So right around our center, there's this kind of three-mile walk that many people take every day. And I was doing that walk every day, and I would look at these beautiful, gorgeous leaves on the trees, and I'd think, stay there. (laughs) (laughs) She's not coming for another week you know, if she comes and all the leaves are down, it's going to be like, I'm just sort of brown and shriveled, you know, like what kind of inaugural visit is that going to be for her in the fall? Just stay there, you know, and I, would, I was getting a little tense, you know, and every day I take this walk, and then um, finally one day she called me, and she said, oh, you know, something came up, and, and I feel really badly, but I can't come, and I have to say that my first reaction was actually one of relief. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, oh good, now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, that's fine, you know. But I don't think it's real megalomania. I think that we, whether we realize it or not, that's how we feel. That we must never grow old, we must never get sick, we must never die, because that's a personal disgrace. That's a failure of control, that we've done something wrong. We must never be unhappy, we must never be frightened. Because society tells us that's not allowed. We mustn't be different. All of those things that that are kept so hidden, as though they were mistakes, you know, as though we should have been able to control it. We should have done better than that. Well, sorry, you know. (laughs) But that's how we are. This should only be praised. This should never be blamed. Everything I do should only have tremendous accolades heaped upon it and upon me. You know, where do we get these ideas? But that's how we live, actually, when you think about it. And when I have, you know, I said I have a book coming out in October, and I was so relieved that I'd finally finished it. And, you know, I'd done all this work, and it was done. And then I woke up one morning, about two weeks ago, and I thought, oh, it's going to get reviewed, isn't it? (laughs) And another whole cascade of praise and blame, you know, will, will come upon me. But our offering, our genuine offering to the world is in the motivation. That's the conduit, that's the connection for our energy. So the book, basically Clueless, is really a reflection of the fact that I am coming to see that the most important thing is trusting our intention and letting go. Trusting in a way the unfolding of events It's like Kempo letting go of that dove, because it has to be. The very nature of the dove is to fly away. That's its freedom. And that is both, it's such a picture of trust as well. There's that dove landing in Kempo's hand and trusting him enough, and him being able just to let it go when it's time. And I came to that through this whole series of events, which are um, a little bit complicated to talk about, but it, um, uh, many years ago, you know, our teacher Upandita, came uh, to Bari in 1984. and um, that particular year, he had a really superb translator. And so, I and some of my friends, after that retreat, thought, well, let's try to make a book out of the talks that he gave during this retreat. He was there for 80 days, and um, so we got together, this small group of us, and we raised some money, and we got a transcriber, and um, we got all of the transcriptions done. And then this one friend of mine in particular spent hours and hours and hours editing because um, they were given in a very uh, classical form, and we wanted to broaden it somewhat and make it more accessible for Western people. And she spent hours just uh, changing little things here and there to make it somewhat more accessible. And then the book came out. Um, it's called *In This Very Life: The Wisdom Teachings of the Buddha*. And we were very happy about it, you know, and. and uh, We knew it was never going to be a great bestseller, and we just thought, oh, well, that's nice, you know, that we were able to do something in honor of our teacher, and we were able to, um, you know, produce in effect, this book, which will never be a massive bestseller, but will really serve people who are interested in that very classical idiom and that way of expressing the teachings. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story has to do with this woman named Aung San Suu Kyi, who is, in fact, the democratic leader of the country of Burma. Now, Burma, as well as being the place where I and so many of my friends have done so much of our spiritual practice, is also a country that's run by a military dictatorship, which, for some reason, goes by the acronym of SLORC. They actually couldn't have chosen much better. Um, and it's a very brutal regime. And she herself uh, was put under house arrest Um, for six years. And once she was released from house arrest and began to be interviewed or nominally released from house arrest, her activities are now again quite restricted, but there was a period when she was doing a lot of interviews and she described her situation when she was under house arrest, which was really very terrible. Um, She said that it was always very clear that she could leave Burma if she wanted to, and come to England, where her husband is, or, you know, go to the States, but uh, she wouldn't be allowed back in. And so she always chose to stay, even under those very difficult conditions, because she was and is the symbol of hope for the people of her country. And she said that, you know, she, her children were 12 and 16 when she was first uh, put under house arrest, and she didn't see them for many years, she didn't see her husband for many years, she was very poor. She was malnourished. There were many days she couldn't afford food. She couldn't, some days she didn't have the strength to get out of bed or her hair fell out. And, um, it was really, it was very hard. And then once she was released, I had several friends actually who at different times went to see her and spoke to her about her time under house arrest. And she also wrote about it um, a couple of different times later. And she told each of these friends, uh, plus she wrote that her main source of spiritual support during her years of house arrest was Upandita's book. And that was a real mind blower. You know, it's like it was shocking, it was amazing, it was, it was almost beyond belief, you know, to sort of try to comprehend how. We had invited a Burmese teacher in 1984 to Barry, Massachusetts, and had worked together to somehow try to create this book, which we thought was a good thing in a very small way in this world, in a very circumscribed or for a very circumscribed, limited audience. And that somehow, as it turns out later, her husband sent it to her, but it got back to Burma into her hands and. She says um, in a text, which I have, although not with me, um, that she was really struggling. She said it very beautifully. She said, like, so many of my Buddhist colleagues, I wanted to put my imprisonment to good use and learn how to meditate, which in itself is an amazing statement about purpose and sense of motivation. And she said, and I couldn't practice, you know, that sometimes I just didn't know how to relate to my mind. It seemed to be making things worse. And I would just sit there and grit my teeth and make myself get through it. And then I got Upandita's book. And that's how I taught myself to meditate. And that gave her, you know, of course, tremendous support. And it was extraordinary to think about that. It was one of really the most gratifying moments of my life. And then I called my friends who had done all those hours of editing, you know, hours and hours and hours of editing. and And we talked about it. And it was, um, it was so amazing, and then we talked about, we had each been in Burma practicing, and we talked about what it was like, as I mentioned last night, to be fed by those people, you know, who were so poor, and who really would do anything to take care of us, and how really we recognized that that, in some way, was part of why we had put all that effort into creating the book. was because we've been fed by those people and taken care of by those people, and we wanted to honor their teachings and their expression of the dharma um, through through Upandita. And it was really amazing, because it's like, then one would have to think, well, where's the first cause? You know, was it in our being children, in effect, in 1976, and deciding to start a retreat center so that we could invite Upandita in 1984, was it in someone's going to Burma, was it in the Buddha being born? You know, there is no first cause. It's just like a stream of interconnected events. And so what I really learned from that is, first, that we're basically clueless, that we have no idea where the good that we do will end up. It can seem like a very small thing, and maybe it is for a very long time. But all the good that we do reaches out. It ripples out. It's not inconsequential. And we have no idea where it will go. All that we do is consequential. But we don't tend to honor the good. We tend to look at the negative and get stuck there. And that when we see something in front of us, to the good, that seems like it will serve somebody, we need to do it if we can. And then we need to let go, because we have no idea where it's going to go. And that maybe with the wisdom of hindsight, you know, over enough years, we can look back and say, well, that was really incredible, you know, that I did that, and that allowed that, and that allowed that, and that allowed that. The opera that I just saw uh, last week (laughs) in Santa Fe was called Ashoka's Dream. It's a Buddhist opera. And uh, it was just kind of an amazing coincidence that I got to go um, when I left this retreat uh, the day before I flew out to fly here. (laughs) And um, Ashoka was an emperor in northern India about 500 or so years after the time of the Buddha. And I think it's a a wonderful example of this. In his early career, uh, Ashoka was a very bloodthirsty, greedy emperor who wanted a lot of territory and waged a lot of battles in order to secure it. And it said that after a particularly terrible battle, he um, was walking along the battlefield in the morning, just seeing all that he had created through his greed, and you know all of the bodies and the violence and so on. And he felt really miserable. And just then it said that a Buddhist monk went walking by, went walking through the battlefield, looking very serene, looking very happy. Ashoka was struck with the thought, well, why is it that I, who have everything... I mean, he was an emperor, you know, he said, I have everything that one could want in a material sense. I'm so miserable. And here's this monk. He owns nothing. All he owns are the robes he's wearing and the bowl, the begging bowl he's carrying, He seems so happy. You know, what is it?" So he followed after him, and he he more or less asked him that. He said, "'Why do you seem so happy?' And the monk taught him something of the Buddha's teachings, and Ashoka became very devoted, and changed the entire nature of how he ruled his kingdom, so that instead of waging war, he was building hospitals, and planting trees, and feeding people, and so on. And it was both his son and his daughter who took the teachings from India, to Sri Lanka, um, where they then spread through Southeast Asia, Burma, and Thailand, Vietnam, to the north of China, uh, and Tibet, Mongolia, and ultimately to here. So I think about that a lot, too. I think, well, the happiness of that one monk, without a word, just walking by, actually changed the course of history. You know, we would not be sitting here in this room together today, perhaps, if that had not happened. And so, I really think our happiness is a revolutionary act, that without a word, without a grand gesture, maybe without anything, just walking by, it can change things. But because we don't know, then we need equanimity. We need that peace that says, things are the way that they are. Let me act, or let me be, from my deepest knowledge, my deepest wisdom, my purest level of love and compassion. And then things will unfold, however. These are the four Brahma-viharas taken together. I'll close with a passage um, from this writer, Susan Griffin. Uh, The book is Woman and Nature. I think really quite beautifully expresses this sense of our wholeness. Why don't we sit just as I read this? I know I read fast some <laughs> <laughs> We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving, and we are part of this motion. That the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts on each side of the mountain, like the parting of our hair, and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides, that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky. This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. We cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say every act has its consequences, that this place has been shaped by the river, and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say, look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another, There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred.